Damaged Goods Podcast. And I also noticed you've got the earbuds in. You look like serious businessman leads, dude. Yeah. Well, I, I I find it better to do these with the earbuds, just so it, I don't. No one you have to hear. Everyone in the house doesn't need to hear my uh, conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you look like you should be running on a treadmill with those in, like closing the deal. Like, no, he's not playing the show. Cancel him. Like, just running. Yeah. Do you not want me to wear them? No, dude, they look great. It's cool. I'm doing fun, dude. I just I'm gonna make observational remarks though. It's all good. Yeah, dude, your beard is looking ferocious these days, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. Been having it maintaining the beard for a while now. Like yeah, decade. yeah, I know. I noticed, man. I noticed, dude. It's crazy because, like, you know, uh, as you get a little older as a man, your ability to like really make a beard. See, I've known you quite a while since I was probably not able to grow a beard, and then you get a little older, and then you can get the man beard. And when your real man genes come into your body, you know. Right. <laughs> it's all those. So I see we're recording here. You were right. You just randomly turn it on. <laughs> See, oh yeah, that voice you started of the, it with my beard. Is that how is that how we're starting this? Well, well, talking about my beard, talking about the the ear pods and looking like you're a sick businessman. Oh, you started with that. I yeah, see. that's right. That that surprised voice is my guest on Damaged Goods. This is a man I've known for quite a while. He's a very successful, talented dude. My man Ned Wellberry, uh, Leeds of Leeds Entertainment. This dude is like the hip hop promoter in Boston. And, uh, and much more than that, you're like kind of like a, you've been a manager, an executive producer. You had your hands on a lot of projects. You, you actually put out music, curate music. There are a lot, dude. Yeah. My, I'm sorry, you were a little choppy still. Oh, so I yeah. missed the last sentence. No, I just said you, you do a lot, man. You're not just a dude throwing shows, you know? No, man, you got to keep your hand in the, hand in the do many different things in this business. As you know, as a hustler, you have to, have a couple of things going on. It's not just one thing you do. It's it's a bunch of things. So like, you know, obviously it started with promoting shows and then managing artists and then putting out music and then curating playlists and then owning a studio, then becoming a talent buyer of all music in the Middle East, then becoming the general manager of the Middle East. And now I'm doing digital marketing. So it's all, it's all... A lot. <laughs> Play a lot. Wear a lot of hats. You know. What no, I mean? no, that was like twelve hats. That's. And you know, like you know, what you said was it started off promoting shows. The way Leeds and I knew each other is is um, you gave me a mixtape you made first, and I was like, oh, this dude's got great taste in hip hop, like same taste in mine. So even before you were promoting shows, you were already making tapes. Did you know when you were like, all right, I'm going to start throwing shows, was it down the line you knew eventually you were going to want to wear those other hats, start doing those other things? Yeah, I, don't, I didn't really, you know, when I met you, I was just starting at uh, Northeastern, and I was a DJ at that point, more like a mixtape DJ um, in New Hampshire, just really like putting together these mixtapes that was like, double disc mixtapes and like CDs back when you had to burn it all on a CD. And I was doing the movie samples early. Yes. And, uh, you know, um, I was doing those mixtapes and that's kind of what it was, but I was in New Hampshire. So like people weren't really feeling the underground hip hop as much as they were in the city. So I ended up in Northeastern. And like I said, my first, my first love was just putting together mixtapes. And I was doing that since a kid, you know, when you had the tapes and the, the dual, tape decks and the high speed dubbing. Um, that was my favorite thing to do in the world, you know? So becoming a DJ was like a natural progression, oh, but I didn't love DJing in clubs and playing mainstream music all the time. And around 2000, 2001, 2002, the music got way too, like the commercial music I wanted to get played was just not up my alley. Like yeah. back that thing up was like the, back that stuff was like the number one hit. And I was like, Everywhere I go, I have to play that like 14 times. So like, I just went underground. Yeah. No, so, yeah. I get it. I get when I landed at Northeastern, I didn't really know what to do. I just wanted to be in Boston. I wanted to be in the music business. That's all I knew. And um, I didn't know where I would, where I would, what my role was going to be. But like I said, at the time, like the music industry was crashing because of like down, the illegal downloading and burning CDs. Maybe. Yeah. Napster was like, that was Napster was like popping, peaking. Um, yeah, audio galaxy. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, there's all. And then you had LimeWire, but LimeWire would just destroy your computer. <laughs> <laughs> and then you had this crazy notion like, okay, I'm going to like undertake the crazy endeavor of throwing live hip hop shows. Like one of the craziest choices a person can make in the music industry. And you just was like, fuck it, I'm going to throw shows. Well, I mean, at that time, I was, I guess, I was working for Metro Concepts, um, yeah, and they were throwing shows. You know, they threw those Super Bowl battles that you won one year yeah. as a rapper. Yeah. By the way, I'd like to admit that I'm talking to Jay, Jay the S here. I think he goes by his real name now, Damaged Goods, but he's a rapper. Well, they all know. <laughs> I know him as Jake the Snake, the rapper, yeah. then Jay the S, and now whatever yeah. he's using for a name, I don't know. I use Jake the Snake. <laughs> but anyways. I go, Jake the Snake's easier to pronounce than my real last name, so I still use it. <laughs> Most people can't. So, it's, so you just go with the Jake Frazic? Is that Jake it? Frazic. See, you can't do it. That's why I have to Frazic. go Snake. It's very hard. Yes. But I mean, on my book, I go by Jake, Jake Frazic because I want it to be like my fucking name. But I like people on my radio show or podcast, they know Jake the Snake or the Snake Man, J the S. So I don't, I don't care. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, like you, you, dude, I know this. And like a lot of people who listen to this were fans of mine back then too, or they're, they're, they're people who know about live music and touring and shit and throwing shows is fucking nuts, dude. And one of the hardest, if not the hardest part about it is being the dude who's like the promoter who actually fucking throws the show, dude. And that's like, it always blew my mind that you like, you were down for that. It was a mission. That's a crazy mission. Yeah. Um, at the time I was, you know, in my early twenties and I was just going out to shows and I just loved, you know, to me that was, I was, you know, coming off a career of hustling, yeah. you know, um, you know, hustling trees. <laughs> so I was like, you know, the, 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 you know, the government and the law, the legal system, you know, shut me down. But uh, nowadays I get offered a job at a dispensary, but uh, I, I was coming off that type of lifestyle of just like, you know, you buy this, you sell it for that, right? <laughs> so I was like, it made sense to me. Like, you know, uh, you buy the talent, you rent the room, and then the profits all go to you, right? So it was like, and I was, and I was just, and then like, you know, after that hustling had stopped, I needed something to transition to. I was selling phones in the mall. I was that guy that was like, hey, what do you got for a phone? What do you got for a phone? This is when cell phones were really taking off. And then, um, so then like shows to me, that was like the, the uh, natural progression and it was a role that was needed to be filled at the time. Like I said, the labels were crashing. Metro Concepts was going out of business. Any type of grill marketing thing was done. So, but the, the one thing you couldn't duplicate or download was the live performance. So I just, you know, I was young, I was single, wanted to go out all the time. So I was like, oh, let's just start throwing shows. I loved hip hop. I, I grew up going, not grew up, but I went to Middle East shows prior to me throwing them. And, to me, it was such a great intimate space to throw an underground hip hop show. It was just like underneath the basement vibe. It was a great place. Yeah. And especially when you could still, not that I ever smoked cigarettes, but I don't know why I liked it, but the way when you could smoke in there, just like clouds of smoke would just float down there. It was just thick, it burning your eyeballs. I liked it though. Yeah, you could smoke butts back then and like smoke. We well, really couldn't supposed to smoke weed, but they were smoking weed down there and it was in yeah. the basement. So. Yeah, I mean, the history there before me, you know, um, all those shows and all those events, it was, uh, yeah, to step into that role was like, yeah, man, I'm ready. No, that was like the shit. <laughs> like, like, let's go. Mo I feel like most people, when they think of like promoters, people think of like club promoters, like club night, like when a DJ spins at a club night, they don't think of like the music promoter role, which I just know from being around people like you or people I've worked with on tours, it's a fucking headache because you're dealing with, like you said earlier, the talent. And dude, talent is not easy to deal with. There's personalities, egos, demands, um, schedules. It's crazy. And then you got even like local talent. And then you're talking about a limited amount of places in Boston at the time where hip hop's even showcased. And then even limited amount of shows happening and a lot of people trying to perform at those. So you've got a very high demand, uh, supply of rappers and, and, and they all want to fucking rock and open up. And I know that's just like, got to be a lot of pressure on you as a promoter. Like you got everyone coming at you wanting to perform. 
Yeah, that was that was that was probably the biggest challenge, to be honest. It was dealing with all the uh all the different people, man. You know what I mean? Like sometimes the performance would be cool, but the entourages were difficult. Everybody wants to be backstage, everybody wants to get in for free, everybody, you know, wants something. Um, and someone's gotta tell them no. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I I hated being that guy, but you know, at that time I had to be that guy because it was my livelihood. It was like, this is how I pay my bills. This is how I make a living, you know, and this is safety issues. We can't just let everybody back here. And it's like, you want to be friendly, but at the same time, you have to draw a line. People are drinking, getting drunk. It's just, uh, I had to take it real serious because if I didn't take it real serious, it was going to fall apart pretty quick. Yeah. Um, I don't miss that part of throwing shows at all. I don't, and you're right. I don't, it is stressful. Yeah. <laughs> it was extremely I mean, stressful. I'm surprised you don't have as many gray hairs as I do from doing shit like that. That shit's stressful, bro. I, I, well, I got sober. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, also, for people who aren't familiar with Boston, I'll, I, you'll probably attest to this, too. You know, it always felt like the city really didn't want hip-hop shows going down. And the few venues that were able to do it and, and, and stuff, you couldn't risk the opportunity for further shows not to take place. Like an incident was to happen at, so even if it was a club night, not, not a live show per se, but it was a hip hop club night. If shit went down there, that night might get pulled from said venue. And it was just constantly felt like the, the, the places where you could see live music, live hip hop was getting more and more limited. So for a dude in your position, some shit pops off at one of your shows. Not only does it fuck up like you know that show for you or whatever, but your relationship with the venue or the venue's willingness to even have hip hop shows, and now the scene suffers and shit. The culture suffers. You know, there's a lot on on the table. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Middle East was one of the few spots that really allowed hip hop to come in. We're pretty cool about it, and uh, you know, before them, you're right. Boston really wasn't having it in the '90s, and the Middle East and Cambridge really was just was really kind of open to it. And because of that, me and many others had careers, uh, you know, as independent promoters or musicians or whatever, because of that, and it opened the door for a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> but you're right though, if there was an incident and this has happened and I had seen it, you know, if someone got hurt or there was a fight or a really bad fight or like a stabbing or a shooting or whatever, um, yeah, that could shut down hip hop shows in the Middle East, uh, everything was riding on it. So like, again, you, you had to be kind of vigilant with your uh, security and your procedures and just playing it safe and better safe than sorry. And it was just a lot of stress and anxiety about worrying about that stuff, you know, because like I said, one show, one incident happens and then the city can say, okay, no more hip hop shows for a while. And then what? Everyone's screwed. You know what I mean? So. I always carried that type of burden around with me. People didn't really understand it all completely, but that's what it was. Yeah. And any arguments I ever got into anybody with about it or whatever was generally about that. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, let's not screw this up for the whole community. I'm sure you got somebody who's like, yo, Leeds, why, why are you putting me on? You're putting this dude on. Or you're, you're, why are you making us go on this set or beefing with you? Or, or you're not letting me bring in all these guys with me on my, my set and my show. And they're looking at you mad because you're, their mind, shortchanging them on this one moment, this one experience, this one opportunity to perform. But you're looking at not just tonight's show, but you're looking at the whole fucking year's show is booked and all these things and, and, and the greater scene. And you're trying not to fuck it up, not just for your career, but like you said, for, for hip hop in Boston in general. Um, and it's hard, I think, both like for that, that young artist who just can't see Paps, why aren't you giving me some love or why are you tripping on me? I want to perform to see like how like, you got to be kind of more responsible, play that in a way to the scene in, 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 in the live show sense, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it was tough to appease everybody. You can't appease everybody sometimes, man. You know what I mean? And you know, I didn't I didn't necessarily um, I didn't understand my role as much as I guess I should have. You know, like I didn't understand. To me, it was just um, let's just get the show safe, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that like I was kind of the gatekeep, becoming this gatekeeper of opportunity. Yeah. That. 
people were depending on the live shows and needed those opportunities um, and needed and, and were having trouble finding them. So I was like kind of like the only one promoter at that time um, that was willing to book hip hop. So if, if they weren't getting booked by me, then they were kind of like there was no, they, they were kind of losing. And that was a lot of pressure on me, man, because I couldn't, like I said, book everybody. Yeah. You know? And, you know, that's why when I later, later down the road, I was like, dude, we need more promoters. Like I can't do all this, you know? And I always welcomed it. You know, when I became a talent buyer at the Middle East, I was like, I was trying to like get more people in there and, and to learn this trade and, 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 and work with more people. And people did become more promoters. There were more independent promoters starting um, before everything got shut down and starting to get better. Um, and that took a lot of pressure off me, man. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> I enjoy what you did a lot more too, you know? You feel a little bit lighter. Yeah, because I think when I came in the game, I was like, I was all about doing what I wanted to do, right? Like the artists I wanted to work with, the shows I wanted to promote, that's what I wanted to do. And I was kind of like <clears throat> a little arrogant to like what had been done before me, the people that had, uh, you know, had rapped and had done things before me and the new people coming up that I didn't know. And I just kind of wanted to do my own thing. And I didn't. Like I said, I didn't understand my role as kind of like a, a community person, because um, I didn't come up, I didn't grow up in Boston. You know what I mean? So I grew up out in, in you know, New Hampshire, Southern New Hampshire, and Northern Mass. So I didn't have the ties uh, to everybody, like people that were from here. So I, you know, and I was stubborn and I was kind of defiant. You know, I, people tell me I needed to do this. That was like me. I would just automatically say, "No, I'm not doing this." You know, and uh, like, you know, but now I see the once I got into a position where I was stable and I was like, OK, now I'm in a good place. Then I realized what I was. And that's when I opened up the doors to everybody and really try to just grow it. Um, but that took a while to get to that point, unfortunately. And I was young and I was dumb and drunk and high and not always paying attention. So. <laughs> um, but eventually that was my goal in the end was to just try to get as many people involved, especially at the Middle East. I wanted everybody to be involved in the Middle East. It was an independent venue that was open to anybody. It was one of the few venues that did that. I was all, uh, that was my goal. Yeah. It really was. And some people were like thought that I was being overly competitive and it wasn't because I was being overly competitive. It was just, I had relationships that other people didn't have with booking agents. What, are, what do you, they mean by overly competitive and what, uh, and what nature? Well, I think it was because I was a talent buyer at the Middle East and, you know, I, they thought I was like, you know, deciding what, you know, it wasn't fair to other promoters. And yeah, I, I understand that. Um, but you got to also remember that those were late, you know, I had relationships with booking agents I had developed over 10, 15 years. And that kind of is the name of the game, unfortunately, for, you know, people. It's like, you know, you are who you know and you are your relationships with. And, you know, I wasn't going to give away my good relationships at the same time. So I was getting the best shows. Um, but, you know, but new promoters, they got they to earn those. And that takes time to build those up, you know. So I wasn't, I wasn't at an advantage, but I kind of worked to that advantage at the same time. Yeah, I mean, dude, you earned it through dealing with all the stress that you were describing before. You go through all those headaches and those frustrating times and the times where you can't enjoy it as much, but there's an upside or there's there's a, a positive byproduct to all that, and that's, like you said, those working relationships, that experience that you earn. A lot of people hate that. You know, they always look at somebody in your position like that. I guess like, well, that's the old guard. They're, they're limiting my upward mobility or my entrance. But it's, I mean, it's not to say, well, someone did it before you and, and whatever, but it's just, if you spent the time busting your ass and earning shit the hard way, it's hard to relinquish that, especially when you're still trying to make a career out of it and, and, and benefit from it. Yeah, I mean, totally. It, it's, um, you know, I always told people, hey, listen, if, if you can't get a show with me, just book your own, man. <laughs> you know, like, you, you, I, you know, that's how I did, you know. Um, yeah, that's it, true. But it was, uh, 
yeah, it's a you know, it's like the Dark Knight theory. You know, you're the you're the <laughs> hero at first, and then you become the villain. I was you know? for you yeah. to drop a movie quote in here soon, bro. I thought we were gonna get one at least in the first ten minutes, but what one thing? Well, it's, it's that same. Th it's that same theory. You know, it's like you become the standard. You become the system, and then people just naturally rebel. Yeah, it's true. You know, and, and I never wanted to be that, you know. Oh, but it's all, I, all I wanted to do was throw my all I wanted to do was throw my own shows. Yeah, I wanted to be the best at what I did, yes. But you know, it wasn't like I was obsessed on that. Like it was like I just wanted to throw the shows and make a living and not worry about all this extra drama. But it just came with the territory, man. It just did. And I had really no mentors at that time in front of me saying this is what you need to do this is how you handle that but i was blazing the trail by myself uh learning from my mistakes and trying to fix as many relationships as i can and i'm still trying to fix some of those relationships today you know man like things just you know it's a crazy business things got out of control sometimes and uh, i always tried to make the best decision but i always didn't you know like sometimes i didn't handle things correctly um but I, I like I've really tried over the last four or five years to just try to make things right with everybody, you know? Yeah, man, it's admirable, man. I mean, I can't tell you how many times when I was active in my music career, people would be like, yo, man, Snake, I see you boys playing these these lead shows. Like, can you hook me up? And they're like, I don't even know that dude that well. If I was gonna do that to anybody, it would be somebody that I was already tighter with that I would put through you. But these are like exterior people asking me. And I'm like, dude, I, you got to go play some shows and I don't know, dude, put a record, I win a battle. Like, I, I don't, why, I can't help you get on shows if I'm still helping somebody more close to me get on a show. But many people ask me to plug them with, with leads for, for gigs so many times. And I'm sure yeah, I'll do it sometimes backstage. So I apologize for ever giving you any gray hairs or headaches, bro. I didn't mean it. No, you were actually pretty good to work with. And, you know, for those listening, like, you are the, uh, that don't know our relationship. Like you were the first dude, first local rapper I met when I came to Boston. Yeah, dude, You know, we had a class together and, and this is a funny story for people listening, but Jake was a prima donna and wouldn't play certain venues. Yeah. And I was just starting out. I was just starting out and I was like, I'm doing a show at All Asia, will you please play? He's like, no man, I ain't doing a show at All Asia. I ain't doing the Western front. Uh, was. Middle East only. And I was it's like, true. all right, bro. I got in some trouble in all Asia. A few of my friends, I have a lot of graffiti writer friends, they got drunk and they etch bathed, which is like that acid that you can kind of paint with almost on the glass. They etch bathed. All Asia was a club in Cambridge on Mass Ave for the listeners that had wall or what do you call it? Floor to ceiling glass windows. So you could actually see into it at night to see people playing music. And some of my affiliates etch bath tag the fucking windows and shit. So I wasn't well liked there. And I think there was another incident there too. So I just, I was like, fuck that place. You know, very. No, no, I don't think that's the, that was the story. Because uh, oh, it, <laughs> it was under my, um, my couch. No, no, I think you just, I think that was just, I don't like the sound of not playing. I think that's oh, all it was. Yeah, the sound I didn't like, because also. It was bad. It was bad. <laughs> when you know there's a good sound over there, you're like, I want to I wanna go there where the good sound is, sir. You know? You want to play? Yeah, it? no, I mean, All Asia was the starting venue for most bands and promoters, you know, you know. But you got to do it. You, know, you go, you go, you go, you walk in, you talk to Patty, she write your name in a calendar book, you get the date. I actually brought my own sound system in in the beginning, and even that didn't sound good. And <laughs> and it was a bar, in the, and the bar was like an island bar in the middle of the venue. The sound all off. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but I'd be sucking down. They'd be giving you these little personal uh, scorpion bowls. And I'd be, man, you'd suck like three or four of those down. And by the time you suck the third one down, the first one would start kicking in. So by the time you got to the fourth, you were fucking lit. <laughs> I barely made it home many a times. Oh, these scorpion bowls are dangerous, man. Dangerous. There's a. It doesn't taste like you're drinking alcohol. Those ones, you know. There's a dude um, on my phone. His name in my phone is Scorpion Bowl Mike, and it's a long story. A female friend of mine's associate, and I, his Scorpion Bowl Mike. I don't even know why he's in my phone. Uh, well, shout out Scorpion Bowl Mike, and anyone that had any of those at uh, All Asia, because okay. those things are. Woo! <laughs> Woo! With with all the crazy 
show shit, like without throwing any artists under the bus, like what are some of the crazier stories from throwing shows that stand out to you? It doesn't have to be crazy bad, not like a fucking shooting or something, but any crazy stories or shows. Is it like bad or, is it bad or good? Both, both, any. We pull up the list because, you know, when people ask me, I'm just gonna I recall the memory of everything I've done here, hold on. So Anything that. Try, try to think of one I haven't told before yet either, because I don't. I hate saying the same ones over and over. If again. it's crazy, fucking tell it to me. I might not. I might not be aware of it. It's crazy that you got to do that ill-ass DMX show. Or did you do two DMX shows? Well, we could talk about that one. I mean, that that was uh, that was a Scarface show. Um, that oh, was he, a Scarface tour. Yeah. What'd you say? I'm sorry. That Scarface brought out DMX, right? Well, what happened was, is uh, Scarface was doing the tour, and right before we're about to open up doors, he goes, he, he tells me, uh, "Listen, DMX and Swizz Beats are coming. Just be ready for them at the back door." And I was like, "Yeah, okay, sure, whatever." Like, you know how many times I had heard, you know, you you when you're a promoter, you hear that all the time. Like, so and so is coming. Famous yeah. people are coming and they don't come. I mean, sometimes they come, but more than like 90% of the time, they don't show up. So I was like, all right, sure, whatever. All of a sudden, in the middle of Scarface's set, all of a sudden, security is rushing the back door. I have no idea what's happening. My stage manager at the time, Jake, is like, DMX and Swiss Beats are here. Is I go outside, is a brand new McLaren Parked in, parked, parked in the uh, in the in the Middle East alley, which yeah. can fit like one car and it's in a dumpster. And DMX is outside taking a piss <laughs> on the dumpster, yes. sixty deep. <clears throat> like a Swiss beast is like in disguise. He's got like a hood over his head. Like you can't even tell who he is. Uh, but DMX is you fully know who he is. Uh, they go down the stairs. And 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 they, they you know and then ends up performing on stage and then hangs out the whole show. <laughs> so then it's like after he performs, he's in the crowd and the crowd is going crazy, taking pictures with this guy. DMX is walking through the Middle East downstairs, 550 person capacity venue, and people are just blown away by this. And it, and it was uh, totally random. Um, Man. And whoever bought a ticket that night for Scarface lucky, got dude. the best memory of a show they ever had. I mean, just seeing a Scarface solo show alone oh, he's is, the best. Is, a, is in in Boston is a huge deal, in my opinion. You know, it took me 15 years of my career to finally make that show happen. Um, and then to add that on top of it, you know, uh, and the funny story is that I found out later in a Swiss Beats interview is DMX and Swizz drove from upstate New York to Boston just to see Scarface that night. Damn, that shows you. Like so they drove four hours to the mid. They weren't in town. They drove four hours to the Middle East to see Scarface perform. And then DMX came out and did Rough Riders Anthem, Where My Dog's At. Huge, 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 like, spiel about how uh, the Scarface was his favorite rapper. The they were, I think they were performing Scarface songs together for a second, and it was uh that was a great great story, man. That was that was a wow. That was a whoa. <laughs> That's crazy, bro. I mean DMX is like, you know, in lieu of his passing, everyone shares kind of moments that are similar to the story you just showed, uh shared rather, that showcase kind of like this this character about him, like, you know, as big of an artist as he was, he was very much I don't know, he walked around with a pretty, pretty calm head and he was very much like amongst the common people. He wasn't in the flashy shit or whatever. And he was just, he didn't need bodyguards. He was just rolling. I've heard so many stories that sound similar to that one, not just take away from the uniqueness of it, but just a greater show that DMX was a very special superstar. Where some dudes are prima donnas won't play like all Asia when they're fucking 18, like me. Then you got this dude, this mega millionaire superstar walking through the crowd probably just blowing kids' minds, you know? Just fucking what? That's crazy, man. That's Just imagine you're in a crowd and you're watching Scarface, right? Yeah. And you're there for Scarface, and then all of a sudden, and then DMX comes out. I mean, and you didn't know he was coming. I We did, because we were part of the, the, the crew, but the fans experiencing that, 
That's a great special guest. No, no. <laughs> one of my Swiss Beats. Swiss Beats is on the stage, you know. <laughs> no, I the McLaren, the McLaren is out back. Dude, as a fan of, of live music, I think one of the most incredible things is those surprise moments. Because, yes, you pay for the tickets, who's on the bill, and you're psyched, and maybe you haven't seen them ever, or they're on their final tour, or whatever. But when anyone brings out surprises, especially, like, if you see big surprises like that, you're like, I mean, dude, I saw Nas bring out Jay-Z ones. I've seen fucking um, uh, Buster bring out Tribe. Like, wild shit like that. And it just, it's the best because it, it makes that show so much more special that you kind of talk about that one more to your friends. You probably have other friends who saw Scarface, but they didn't see Scarface when he brought X out, you know, like shit like that. Right. Uh, right. And, and, and another good special guest one, since we'll talk about those, was when I did the, uh, the Slain and Ill Bill show um, around 2000. Seven two thousand eight, right when La Coca Nostra first got formed, and they brought out Everlast, oh, uh, surprise guest. Now at the time, Everlast had not been doing club shows; he had been doing like big, you know, bigger venues, and it was kind of MIA for a while and was not really rapping. So uh, throw Everlast in this basically super rap group with Ill Bill and Slain, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're just there to see Slain and Ill Bill, and all of a sudden, Everlast. In 2007, just randomly shoves out doing the Coconosa songs and then performs Jump Around in the Middle East. You're not expecting that. Crazy. That was a pretty crazy moment early on in my career that I was like, whoa, this is great. You know, Danny Boy's there. I mean, that was uh, at that time in Boston, Irish City. Yeah. That was uh, that was like, wow. You know, shout out Ill Bill and Slain for making that happen, and and Danny Boy and all that because that was that was great, man. You know, for me, I was such an Everlast House of Pain fan um, that that was a huge moment for me. First. Yeah, and I mean, those are the things like pride gets you through all the bullshit moments and shows and all the frustration and stress and like the fucking artists pissing and moaning about shit and all that. You know, those are the moments where you're like, ah, fuck, thank God I do this. You know. Yeah, and there was a lot of those. Like, the good always outweighed the bad for most of my career, you know what I mean? Like, it was always, like, it was always worth it at the end of the day. Um, some shows were really easy. You breezed through. You barely had to do anything. And some shows were, like, every inch of the way was a pain in the ass. You just had to, like, you know, take the good with the bad, really, you know? And uh, at the end, I liked curating shows. Like, I liked putting them together. I liked doing that. And then, you know, I hit a stride where I was like, I, I felt like it was just doing a job, you know? And then I had to kind of re, like the last few years of my career, I had to really kind of re get re myself re-inspired, you know, and, and seek out inspiration because if I didn't do that, it just seemed um, just boring. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't enjoying it. The money wasn't really, you know, I, people thought I made it a lot of money. I didn't really make it you know, a ton of money. I wasn't making six digits doing this, you know? Um, it, it was just, a, it was a normal paying job and most people made more money than me. So it wasn't even like for the money, <laughs> you know? Like I was just, but that love means, the you fucking love it, dude. I mean, money is a motivating factor for a lot of people, but when people are doing something from a passionate standpoint, you're, you're willing to put up with more because your heart's in it more. You're definitely more invested and the whole like kind of what you're talking about about branching out when you hit your strides it's almost like different ways of reinventing yourself to get inspiration uh to do new things to stay kind of creative and active because if you don't you lose your inspiration and you know you hear the musicians and artists we know that kind of really never never change the formula but you can kind of hear the passion dissipating from their voice on more recent records, you almost sounds like they're going for a check. They're not, you know, they're just like, okay, I'm cashing in on this one, phoning in the, the songs and it feels whatever. Then there's certain artists who maybe they, I don't know, they just take different turns in their careers and keeps it interesting for themselves, which keeps it interesting for the fans because there's actually passion in what they're doing or they're into it, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've never really been one, uh, <laughs> When my hustling days were over, 
I realized that, no, it's not about money. You know what I mean? Because like when I say hustling, my illegal activities. Uh, <laughs> not to know, I, I people think. working hard, legally working hard. People are like, I'm out here hustling. I'm like, no, you're working at a nine to five job. That's not hustling, dude. Yeah. Well, hustling, like I said, where we're from, uh, you know, you were, you know, selling, selling something you shouldn't have been selling. <laughs> yeah, coloring out. For me, it was, yeah, yeah. for me, you know, that lifestyle of <clears throat> was all about the money. That was, I mean, I believed that marijuana should have been legal. I smoked it. It was fine. You know what I mean? I was right because 20 years later, it's freaking, it's legal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I was like, word, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, the, the law at the time thought differently, but, you know, they've changed their minds since then. But <laughs> that kind of schooled me to, um, what I was willing to do for money, you know what I mean? And how you can get in trouble chasing money. So when that was all done, I got some crappy sales job in, uh, no, I guess it wasn't crappy. I mean, I was selling cell phones in the mall and uh, this commission-based job, full commission, you know, you only get paid if you sell that thing. Again, chasing the paycheck and it was like, <clears throat> I'm miserable, <laughs> you know, like I'm miserable. Yeah, I got money in the bank, but I'm miserable. Yeah. And, and even hustling trees, I was miserable. I was, I mean, I felt I had my moments, but you know, at the most part, my soul didn't, you know, wasn't feeling great, you know? And uh, so like when I made this decision to pursue music, it wasn't a decision about, you know, I'm gonna go get paid. I'm gonna go, you know what I mean? Like a lot of people jump in the rap game thinking that. Nope. Big mistake. <laughs> so I just wanted to make a living. Yeah. I just wanted to make a living and do and have basic things and uh, enjoy what I do for work and, and survive. That's yeah. all I wanted. I did not want everything else. You know, I didn't even care about the fame, really. You know, um, I just wanted a first interview we did. My goal, my first, when I first started leads, you know, still selling cell phones in the mall. You know, and and they, and they asked me at the time. My main priority was just being full time in the music business. That was my only goal. Um, so, like I said, it was a decision, not really based on money and gains. You know, so not making a ton of money as a promoter. Uh, I was just, I just didn't throw it all away. I guess that was the the big plus I did is like you know I saved my money, I invested it in things like I was just better, good with it, so I didn't lose it and that those good decisions still support a lifestyle of mine in the music, you know, but never, uh, I mean, we do things for money. I, I've done things for money, but it wasn't the whole thing. You know what I mean? Can't be. No, it can't be. I mean, I know some people who do it and it just looks bleak. Like they do look miserable. And I just like, like, you know, when you're talking about in a job where you felt miserable, I've had those two. Where I'm like, fuck this sucks i think back to the times i've had the most money in my life strangely i was not the happiest yeah. not to say that you can't be happy with money it might have been what you know one's doing for that money you know but if, if you're miserable all day especially if you're busy it's consuming all your time so even if you got this money but you ain't got no fucking time to spend it or spend it with people you like what the fuck's the point? You're like this lonely king in the castle who never sees the sunlight and die alone, dude. Fuck, that sounds horrible, dude. I got a gun under my bed. I'll yeah. shoot myself before I do that, you know? Um, yeah. Nothing you know, I, was, doing that, which you like. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's got to be a balance, right? Because you got to make a living, right? You got to, like, pay your bills, do stuff, and have things. And you want to do the things you want as long as it's not an excess or someone gets hurt. But it's like, there has to be a balance. Um, and, and I'm still working on that balance. It's not like, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in it, but you're right, man. Like the, 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 the slave to the dollar theory, you know, um, and that's what I was yeah. for a long time, you know, working these jobs and doing stuff before leads. It's just, you know, just, yeah. worshiping money man worshiping the dollar just thinking like once i get this amount right like once yeah. i get this amount i'm good right yeah. then i get that amount and i just set the line back farther i'm gonna want this amount yeah dude that's what it is man it was never enough it chasing never the dragon enough. it's kind of chasing the dragon right you know 
Yeah. And it just came from, it came from a, just a deep insecurity of myself, really, because I wasn't raised that way. And my mom, we didn't have much. Uh, and my, my parents made, made the most of what they had. So, and, and they were happy. So I wasn't raised that way. It was just my desire for more feeling like I didn't have enough and I wanted more and I was willing to sacrifice my freedom, my life, my time for that. Because I thought some, I think deep down that it would fix me in some way, but it never did. You know what I mean? It never did. It was just uh, an empty hole that just never got filled. Yeah, you keep pouring the sand in the cup and it goes at the bottom kind of thing. Yeah. You it's know, and thank God I did get arrested. I, I can't believe I'm not saying this now, but that's the only way I stopped. Wake up call, you right? Know, uh, yeah. And then by the grace of God, did those charges, you know, got dropped on a legal search and seizure. But really? <laughs> it's just like, not guilty you know when yeah. i met you i would had a you know when i met you in, in northeast and i got arrested like a couple months afterwards yeah you know and i uh i was in the middle i had worked i had worked to this point to get to school and all this stuff and then i was arrested as soon as i got to i had to take a semester off and come back i take a semester off i come back you're like super bowl fucking MC battle champion. I'm like, what the hell happened? <laughs> I don't play shows in all Asia. I don't play yeah. shows anywhere unless there's a, we were yeah, like a, you know, jelly, there's, uh, there's only red uh, M&Ms in the rider, there's jelly beans, there's Jake very, the Snake, you know. Very particular. Canada dry ginger. There's definitely whiskey involved. There definitely needs to be a lot of whiskey and drink wow. tickets. Oh, man, drink tickets. Oh, God, dude. That's the thing, man. You guys get hit up promoters. You, like, just everybody's asking for shit all the time. And you have the patience of, like, a high school teacher. Because you got to deal. And it's not, like, little kids or people. It's fucking grown men, aggressive, angry, frustrated, just always being demanding, asking for shit. People always asking for shit. I can't. I don't know how you did it, man. Well, it's, it's, it's um, I used to get really resentful at, these type of demands yeah. but you don't always you know there's so much in financial insecurity and lack of opportunity in boston that it just kind of breeds in, in music business in general i should say yeah. it just breeds this like i gotta get on by any means necessary attitude yeah kick down the door don't tell me no i'm coming you know what i mean and, and <sighs> And part of that is what you need that you need to make it. You need that in you a little bit to make it. Yeah. Um, that narcissism. Then once you get to a point where you're in a good position, then you can kind of let that down. A lot of people don't. <laughs> but you know, you can you wanna like you, that stuff can destroy you too. So it, it's tough to um to balance that. But you don't always know why people are the way they are. And it took me a long time to understand that, um, you know, not when there's a lack of opportunity, you have feel like you have to really take it. Yeah. Um, and that's what people were doing to me. They were trying to take it. And I get it. You know, I get it. You know, and, and I've been told no. I've been had the door slammed on me. I know what that feels like, man. And I know how angry and, and pissed off you can get. You know, and you can play the blame game and all this. And uh, I understand that mentality. Um, but you have to find ways around it. And you have to kind of just see where you land and, and try new things. You can't necessarily get ahead by blaming other people. Because that's just an excuse, right? So if you, if you use that as an excuse, you're never going to move forward. So, and, and, and if you hold on to that resentment, that's just going to screw things up for you. You know what I mean? That's going to take, it's going to divide your mind yeah, no. and take away from your hustle. So you got to just find ways to work around things and get in where you fit in. Like too short says. Yeah, dude, not. Nah. I always thought, think about resentment, and holding grudges and bitterness. All it does is eat away at you. Like whoever the host of that bitterness is, it's just choosing you. The people that you're bitter at or having that resentment towards, even if they know it, doesn't really affect them as much. It just fucking, it's like just carrying around some extra weight. And when you get to that, that forgiving 
ability. Like I didn't even know, what, I mean, I knew what forgiveness was, was as a concept, but when I finally like realized, wow, like I'm not forgiving other people necessarily for them, I'm forgiving them for me, or I'm stopping being resentful for me. When I learned that, dude, like shit, just wait, like bricks falling off my fucking shoulders. It felt incredible, you know? Uh, yeah, you were, you always were good. You got along with people. I got to give it to you there, man. You were a lot more likable than I was. <laughs> Probably still am. You I don't know. know. Uh, you ask. You, you, you could have, you, you're you like a politician in Boston. <laughs> you're always keeping everybody happy. I made, uh, so I kept some peace, man. There's some mutual friends of ours that you know, like I had one, some dudes call me up, be like, yo, what's up with your boy? Like one of these dudes, another one of my friends. And I'm like, oh God, I was like intermediary for one of one of our you and I's mutual friends, a, ra a rapper who's kind of a wild, funny man, he would say, yeah, he would say some crazy shit. Then some other dudes would get upset about it, and then they come, hey, hey man, what's up, your boy? We're about to form. It's like, nah, nah, he's just, he's just crazy, just you know, yeah, peace. You know? And that was an unfortunate situation that I'm still working on. <laughs> but uh, I mean, no, there's a lot of it's, 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 it, you know, it, it, you're right though. Like so many people in hip hop use resentment as their fuel. Like, I'm, you know, I get to, I want to get successful yeah. to prove all these people yes. that, that I'm something. And it's like, man, you just wasted so much energy in the wrong direction. And all you're doing is letting those people know that they got. Yeah. And screw that, man. <laughs> I lived like that. I lived like that for 30 years, you it's know, like horrible, like, and, that anger was always justified, right? Yeah. But, but wasn't. <laughs> I only justified, you know. But at the end of the day, like my serenity and my peace and my, you know, that type of stuff was disrupted. Yeah. But this, like I said, it all comes down to the the the, the financial insecurity in the music business, the lack of opportunities, where we come from, how we're raised. I mean, it's it's just a melting pot of issues that drive a lot of us yeah. to be great artists and to be great businessmen and to be great hustlers but if you don't get a handle on that it'll destroy you you know that 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 i used to think those things made me great when i got you know sober later i realized those things are destroying me as well so you know balance right and learning how to deal with that shit and process. And a lot of people don't have people in their corner to guide them in that situation. You know what I mean? Like they don't have people to be like, check them and be like, yo, you got to, you know, like I'm saying a good look. Dudes don't always have good teams. You know what I mean? Good role models, good business people. Like just be like, yo, it's not how you do it, man. You know what I mean? Like it's not going to get you ahead, you know? And, and, you know, so many times, how many times do we see dudes coming up that got so talented, but just, they just they self-destruct yeah you know self all the talent in the world they self-destruct and that's because of those things sometimes it's like their crew or the people they keep the company they keep or sometimes it's like yeah they exhibit some of the traits you're talking about like so much talent but yet they'll sabotage themselves whether directly or indirectly um sometimes they'll do it like subconsciously because they're scared of succeeding sometimes they just can't help it by doing some kind of learned behavior that just works counterproductive to the music industry. And uh, dude, you said something that I, I really thought was poignant is, uh, you know, people being fueled by that resentment. And I see that all across social media, not even in just the music industry, but very much in the music industry, especially in the hip hop realm. And that was probably one of the things I hated the most. And it's this fuck all the haters, it's always like, yo, like you'll see people tweeting shit, like saying, man, when I come out with this shit and some all these people have played me, he's gonna fucking get her. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, like just always subcon, what do they call it? Subtweeting? I don't know what the kids say. When I don't really say somebody's name, but. Indirect. Yeah, and they're clearly talking shit about someone who hurt their feelings and they'll just go on these like little vague rants where you're not really giving me any substance to even enjoy it from a, a sick, like, you know, what do you call it, voyeuristic view, like you're just ranting and being angry at people and, and using that as your fuel to, to be successful, to, to fuck these haters, basically. And it's so corny, dude, it's so corny. It's tired, it's yeah, what, I hate it. Once you see the reality of it, right, of yeah. why, you know, what, what it's actually doing and affecting, it's, um, 
Yeah, I mean, you, it, it's one of my biggest peeves right now just because I used to do it. <laughs> you know, like, I used to do it. Most, right? It's self-reflection. We, we hate that shit. Yeah, and it's like, you know, you, you want to get to a point where – I want to get to a point where I'm not going to let someone get to me. Like, we can have a misunderstanding, go our separate ways. If I've messed up, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? But I'm not going to – I'm not – I'm not going to carry that around. Yeah. And I definitely don't want to make someone I dislike my motivation. Yeah. This <laughs> <laughs> you know? like, sort of screws me over, my motivation. But so often we do that. You know, and, and it's, sometimes it's hard when our motiva- those resentments are people we care about, mm-hmm. right? Or people that we've helped, that we thought were friends, that betrayed us and yeah. stuff like that. But the reality is, especially in hip-hop, it's a lot of people, you know, are, are, are twisted and sad. You know what I mean? It kind of comes with the territory. I've just accepted that. People are going to try to screw me over. It comes with the territory. It is what it is. You screw me over. We don't do business again. That could be your loss. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I know that I'm a good businessman. I'm a good person. Like, you you messed up. Yeah. That's on you. It ain't on me. You know? Uh, but also, people sometimes don't really get the, to... Um, to know the the real the truth of a situation, right? We don't seek the truth of it. We just assume, or we hear someone say one thing, we roll with it. We don't seek the, the truth of what really happened. Because a lot of people be telling themselves, you know, with those with those resentments and stuff. A lot of people be telling themselves lies, fueling those resentments. <laughs> you know, they might not be the truth in the situation. They're just making up this fucking fight club in their head that doesn't even exist. Yeah. You know, and, and I've done that. Still do, can do that. I, have, I gotta check myself on that. Definitely done it. Well, that's a, it's a way you can avoid taking responsibility, right? Like, when there's a scapegoat for all the problems, but when you can place it on somebody else, then you don't have to look inwards. You don't have to challenge and critique yourself. You don't have to damage your own ego. Motherfuckers hate to fuck with their own ego because it breaks you down and humbles you. And to be successful and driven and feel confident all the time feel good all the time. You want to keep your ego in check so people don't want to criticize themselves. They're going to blame everybody else for their shortcomings or, yep. you know, the lack of whatever. Some, you know, sometimes people will fuck you over. Sometimes it might be your fault. Like if you were driving down the street, leads and some dude blows a red light and T-bones you, like kind of his fucking fault. But when you go in the realm of like the arts of business, you can't be just blaming every, you, you know, you still got to work hard. You got to, you know, just... Work on your shit. Well, it's like, why, you know, how can I blame anyone else for me, my actions, yeah. right? You know, it's tough with, like, um, gatekeepers and people, you know, kind of just call the shots for everything. But that's all starting to change now, man. You know, in the music business now, man, you don't – there's less gatekeepers anymore. It's not someone saying you ain't good enough or this music isn't good enough. This is, we're going to push this when, you know what I mean? Like you can do it all on your own now, yeah. you know, like, it's not like when me and you were coming up and we had like limited, you know, like the, we had to know the radio guy. We had to know this. If we didn't have good relationships with certain people, we might not happen. You know, things might not happen for us. Yeah. It's not like that now, you know, on a major level, I'm sure it is, but for an independent level coming up, man, you, you don't, you don't need to know me. You don't need to know a radio personality. You don't need to know a blog. You can just shit, man. You got social media. You got Spotify. You got all these things. You can work those angles yourself. You don't need shit from nobody as long as you know how to do it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And you can build that shit up. Yeah. So in this era, no one can really say so and so ain't giving me a chance, and this is why I ain't doing that. Yeah. You got to learn the skill of putting your own music out and you know in that whole process but you know that only you are stopping you at that point so coming off that point let me ask you something and i I ponder this matter quite often back in the day when when i say or lead says back in the day we're talking when we were coming up when we had to go through these channels you have these channels these gatekeepers these things like that maybe less artists trying to do it because it's much harder to do it. There's only few people getting through it. Nowadays, right? Don't need that shit. Social media, Spotify, SoundCloud, you can do your shit, but you gotta know how to work it, like Leeds said, right? Like you said, like know how to 
I don't know, kind of tweak shit so you're going to catch the right algorithms, whatever the fuck. But I find that a lot of people, artists, are absorbing the roles as, I don't need a manager, I can do this. I don't need a booking agent, I can do this. I'm actually going to produce and record. They're, they're wearing a lot of hats, but I feel like a lot of uh, business hats. And maybe it takes away from their actual artistry. Like, do you think there was something to it when artists mainly just worked on being artists? And yes, they had to deal with gatekeepers and these channels and maybe people taking advantage of them, but they were focused more on creating. Where now, yes, guys are putting out music, but they're doing all the other shit too. They're doing their own digital marketing and everything. Is their art kind of getting neglected? Do you think there's any trade-off there? It depends on the artist. I don't think it's a, it's a black and white uh, question. Um, I think like some artists are very self-sufficient, are very self-sufficient. You were a very self-sufficient artist. Thank you, Leeds. How did nice. Okay. Other artists we know are not. Yes. You know, they need managers. They need teams, you know? Um, I think it all depends. I think, yeah. Yeah. I mean, ideally, like I've worked with artists who are like, they need all the help they can get from me. I've worked with other artists who like barely need me to do anything. So it's like, it all depends. And as long as the music sounds good and they don't feel like their music is suffering, I don't think it matters. But I think there are less, um, some, some artists just can't wrap their head around all that business stuff that we just mentioned. They just can't. And it's, it can be overwhelming to some people. And I get, you know, that's why they need guys like me yeah. to help them with their digital marketing, help them with their promotions. You know, they need guys like me to do that. And that's fine. And some some know how to do it already, know how to do it better than me. Shit. So it's, it, it, like I said, I, I think it's, you know, it, depend, it depends on the individual. Um, but I will say this, I think if you have a team, having a good team, you'll be more successful. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, for sure. I, I don't think just doing it yourself your own way without people helping you or learning to work with other people. Some people just, some artists just can't work with anybody. They're just so in their own, their own world. And I think that hurts them too, because they can't learn to compromise with others and share a vision. Right. Yeah. So they'll suffer that way. Cause if it's, who's going to want to work with someone that's always just all about doing it their way, <laughs> like in any form. Right? Like, would you want to work with someone like that? Not going to listen to you. You just dare to do what they tell you to do. No one's going to want that. It's true. So, you know, I think a team is very important. You know, um, when I have a good team with an artist, like, man, we get, we kill. Yeah. We kill. That's good. That's smooth, man. Craziest demands you've ever had from an artist, like, whether it's on the ride or whatever, like, any backstage requests? Just a crazy one. Ridiculous, even, if you will. I'm looking at it. Hold on. Preposterous. Hard to fathom. Unbelievable. See, the Middle East, we didn't get a lot of that at the Middle East. I mean, people, for the most part, knew where they were at. <laughs> You're at a, uh, you know, a basement in Central Square in a grimy, you know, in an old restaurant, old building. I didn't get a lot of the, you know, uh, crazy demands. I mean, oh man, it's got to be something though. Hold on. <laughs> oh man. Uh... Do you get nervous when people crowd surf at your shows? Oh yeah. Because you're always worried someone's going to break their neck. <sighs> so and then you're going to get sued. So that, that's always a, that's always a nerve wracking thing. Who sues that? The person sues the venue. So they still, if they someone breaks their neck and gets seriously hurt, they'll sue whoever they can. So they'll try to sue you, the promoter, the club, maybe. Yeah, the whoever. Damn. Whoever. <laughs> whoever. Jesus Christ. Dude. Yeah, I don't have any. I can't remember any serious demands. I you really. Know, I, in my red M and M's were the biggest demand. The no all Asia. That's the biggest. I think Jake, you saying yeah, no all Asia, no Western Front. Um, I actually, yeah. I grew to like the Western Front again. I put twenty it. people on the list. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's put a, the whole greater good, the whole audible mainframe on the on the list, and uh, we're good to go. Speaking of which, my man, special blend was just here. Like, okay, I, we did have one artist. And I'm not going to say the name about his name. I'm not, I'm not going to say the name on this one because they were they, they were literally they were overseas artists. I'll just say that, and they were big overseas. They were like superstars overseas, but they were Middle East downstairs show here, ah. and they wanted cocaine. 
<laughs> and they weren't letting that go. You know, normally someone say, you know, we get some blow and be like, man, we don't really get that around here. Um, but they were like, this, the tour manager, this guy was like from the eighties. He was just look like he'd been doing it since the eighties and he just wasn't letting it go. And the show was over. He's like, Oh, what's up with the, you know, I forget what did he use? Like the boom, boom or the bang, bang, <laughs> whatever it was. Yeah. And eventually someone told him to go over to the model, uh, the model over in Brighton, that bar. Oh, okay. <laughs> Probably gonna get in trouble by the model for this, but um, who knows? So, so apparently, the tour bus is trying to get the mall. But the model is like an artistic dive bar over in Brighton. It's like it just—it's not a venue. It's just bar. And uh, although I guess apparently the big tour bus <laughs> just pulled up in front of the model. I think they got what they needed. Oh, wow! I'm not—I'm not gonna say for sure if it happened, but I think they showed up. I don't know. They went there looking. I'll say that we look around at what other people are doing and yeah. compare ourselves oh, yeah. and say, we need to do more. Not necessarily. <laughs> you know what I mean? We don't all, we don't all have the same starting point. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're not all coming from the same starting point. So for me to compare myself to any other individual that didn't start exactly from where I am, how can I even say that? How can I even compare that? Yeah. You know, um, I'm just setting myself up for uh, a bad expectation and maybe putting expectations on myself that aren't reasonable and not having any gratitude for anything that I've achieved. Yeah. You know, and so often with social media, do we see the best of people's pictures or whatever, or, or, or their gains or their success and say, fuck man, I ain't got shit. No, that's that, that, but, but that's a reality for a lot of people. Oh yeah. A lot of people think like that, you know, and, and, and especially in an era where we just keep seem to be getting richer and richer as a country, like people just need more and more and more. And it's like, you know, it's to the point where we don't, we don't enjoy our own process anymore. Yeah. Right? It's never good enough. I mean, honestly, this might kind of sound silly and trivial, but it's actually don't think it is one of the reasons behind like a lot of my social media presence, whether I'm promoting this podcast or my book or whatever, is like, I kind of post like sad and depressing shit, but in a humorous way, very self-deprecating even, like not glamorous shit. I make fun of myself a lot. And I like doing that because it feels authentic and good, but I get a lot of like love from people, people I don't know, you know, just fans, whether they buy the book or listen to podcasts, or, you know, just look at the shit on, on Instagram. They like that shit because it makes them feel a little more comfortable because they know shit isn't all peaches and cream out there and they see the fucking bullshit posts that everyone shows them. Some people are like, dude, my fucking day sucks. I work a 12 hour shift. I hate it, but I love laughing at your shit. Or some chicks like, yo, I'm fucking battle for custody of my son and your shit's hilarious. And oh, I read your book and that's crazy. You go to therapy and this and that, man. That's like great. Cause I feel like shit all the time. Like, so people might be like, oh, you just post fucked up sad memes. I'm like, yes, kind of, but actually serves a purpose. And that, that's my point with it. You can post the fucking fake ass motivational quote with a picture of you looking at the sun and shit like a, like any cookie motherfucker. Go do that, dude. I'm gonna do this over here and make fun of myself in the process. Well, I think it comes down to not taking yourself so serious, and I'm glad that you're not taking yourself serious. And your meme game is off the fucking hook. Let me just tell you, I've I've been around some good meme people. R.I.P. Keith Mize. Those who don't know. His me mad meme mize, whatever he used to go by, his meme game was crazy. So crazy he got shut down many times. Yeah, uh, you keep it, I guess, active. I don't see you get shut down. But. I, get, I get tagged a lot. I get reported a lot. I get a lot of yeah. details of random people being like, wrong, that's fucked up. Like, how would you like yeah. that? I'm like, oh, God. And I'm not a bad guy. So to read those, I'm like, oh, you're totally missing the point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I think. I think uh, keeping it honest, right? I think, I think the the big take out of the social media era is is the flip side to it all is, is like honesty, mm. like and in the music business, keeping it honest because for for the last twenty years, I've just seen a facade of people just trying to be something they're not. So many of us, well, you know, I, and I, it doesn't necessarily have to be jewelry and clothing just trying to be something other than who we are, yeah. you know? Um, and I like to see 
and I think we're starting to see it a little bit, is just like honesty coming back. Like, um, realism, like I am who I am. I'm screwed up. I'm this, I'm that. I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be giant superstar. I'm just here. I love making music. My music's good. Or whatever your your wherever you come from, you know your 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 situation's not good or whatever, you know, just keeping it honest because that's the stuff in, in, in not being afraid to be vulnerable about it. Like you're not afraid to be vulnerable and talk about, I'm in therapy. I got sad thoughts. You know what I mean? I got dark thoughts. I got issues. You know what I mean? Because that's most of the way the world is. Really, no one is perfect, exactly. but yet we strive to create this perfect uh, a- avatar social media it's not us it's a salesperson yeah and music to me was never about that you know we came up in a hip-hop era where it was not all about that yeah there was some of it but it wasn't all about that yeah you know it was uh, an aesthetic so i i hope I, I hope to see that you know i think people are starting to get more real with this shit you know what i mean and, and not be afraid to <clears throat> address who they actually are yeah, yeah, and you get more confident in that when you can admit who you are and not be afraid to say how you actually feel. Um, you'll have more peace and serenity from that for sure. For you sure, know? instead of being ruled by insecurity and, and a need for more, because like you said, hip hop falls in, falls into that trap, man. Yeah, and you'll never you'll never fill the fucking glass like we were saying earlier. You're just gonna keep pouring. And porn, but that hole at the bottom is going to leave that motherfucker empty, dude, and you're just going to be chasing the motherfucking track. All right, y'all. This episode of the Damaged Goods Podcast was brought to you by Elite Botanicals. Elite Botanicals is originally the CBD division of Elite Cannabis. If you guys have heard me talk about them, you know this is my favorite CBD product out there. The only one that truly works. I swear by it. That's why I'm endorsing them, not for any other reason. And now they're back with their new line for your little pets, Whole Pet CBD. They are one of the first companies farming high CBD cannabis under industrial hemp rigs. They've been working with CBD since 2013 with one of the first licensees in Colorado. Also, they've been working with Colorado State University since 2016 on their canine research study with CBD. So they know what they're doing. Their focus is providing farm-to-table product that uses the best ingredients possible, ultra-refined, distilled, full-spectrum CBD oil at high potency for reasonable pricing. That's the problem. Most of these other guys are overpriced for their non-working stuff. This allows for effective dosing and a 30-day-plus supply per unit. For the pets, they've got drops that go on their food or in their mouth. they got chicken and salmon-flavored ones. They've got soft gel capsules. they got a gravy powder. You just sprinkle that over their food or put a couple of water in there, and it makes a nice little gravy mix chocked full of CBD, glucosamine, and omegas for their joints. They've got nose and toes balm for cracked noses and paws, and they got some all-natural treats on the way. All this is available at wholepetcbd.com. Elite Cannabis, Elite Botanicals, and now Whole Pet CBD, all from Elite. Go check it out. And now for an additional discount, use the promo code DAMAGEDGOODS. That's D-A-M-A-G-E-D-G-O-O-D-S. Damaged Goods to get an additional percentage off.